We're continuing with a series of talks on marriage. And today I want to consider the question, is it acceptable for a Christian to date and or marry a non-Christian? And uh, this might seem to be a somewhat esoteric question, really, having little relevance except perhaps to a small number of people. But it is a good uh, question to look at once in a while for a number of reasons. One reason is uh, simply that it is a question that actually provokes strong emotional responses. In some churches, the answer to this question is so obviously yes, that even the idea that somebody might answer no is offensive and ludicrous. In such places, it's felt uh, that prohibiting or discouraging freedom of choice in this area would be dangerously cult-like and out of step with the love of Christ. In other churches, it is explicitly taught that it is a grave sin for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. And in many evangelical churches in Australia, a great deal of time and energy goes into trying to convince teenagers and young Christians that they must marry a Christian. In some places, there is little doubt that the driving force for this endeavor is the anxiety experienced by the parents of teenagers and young adult Christians Parents anxious that their children's faith is not derailed by a non-Christian partner. And that is a legitimate anxiety. But in actual fact, it is an extremely important question for us as an entire community to look at. Our thinking with respect to this question will influence our practice and our culture as a community in a variety of ways. So, let's have a go at answering this question. And let's begin by looking at the New Testament. What does Jesus say about this? Excuse me. Actually, Jesus doesn't say anything about this directly. He doesn't answer the question for us. He does tell us, indeed, in many places and in many ways, that being his disciple begins with putting him first radically and decisively. Whoever loves his parents... Children, spouse, job, or stuff more than him is not worthy of him. If we're not putting Jesus first in everything, we're not following him. What about the rest of the New Testament? Does that answer the question, this question for us? Well, there are three texts, all in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, that may be relevant and that are commonly cited with reference to this question. Therefore, we need to look at them. The first one comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, wherein Paul writes, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Uh, Literally, the sentence is, A woman has been bound over to her husband for as long as he lives, But if the husband dies, she is free to marry as she wishes, only in the Lord. Um, And uh, that's the way the um, New American Standard Bible, the uh, New King James, the um, NRSV go uh, with this verse. Um, You see, Paul uses the phrase, in the Lord, it's, it's common for Paul. He uses it seven times in the Corinthian correspondence. And the phrase is a general kind of phrase, meaning with respect to the kingdom of God, or under the lordship of Jesus. So one possible interpretation is of this is that Paul is teaching that the believing widow may marry again, 
but only a fellow believer. That's a reasonable interpretation and the way that our NIV translators have gone. Another possible interpretation is that Paul is teaching that the believing widow may marry again, but only as the Lord leads. In other words, the twin phrases, she is free to marry as she wishes, and only in the Lord, represent two truths to be held in tension. That is, humanly speaking, she's free to marry whomever she wishes. But spiritually speaking, she's not free to marry anyone at all, except that the Lord leads and guides her. And I tend to read the text in this way. Well, moving to the second text, chapter 9 of the same book, Paul writes, referring to himself and Barnabas, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Um, The phrase there, believing wife, translates the Greek, which is literally a sister as a wife. The translation here is natural and good because Paul is using the word sister not to literally mean one of his own sisters, but rather a sister in Christ, a believing woman. What Paul is doing here is he's here affirming that he has the right to marry, but his point in context is about how he chooses to forego this right for the sake of gospel ministry which is better served by him staying single. Now, with respect to this right to be married, Paul inserts the qualifier believing. This qualifier is not necessary to the point he is making. No one would have missed the word if he hadn't have chosen to use it. Don't we have the, t- the right to take a wife along with us, as do the other apostles, etc., etc.? The presence of that qualifier infers that either it would have been unacceptable for Paul to have an unbelieving wife, or that if Paul had had an unbelieving wife, it would have been unacceptable for him to take her along on mission. Both interpretations are possible. So where are we up to? Well, we have two texts. They are both consistent with the notion that Paul assumes Christians know to choose a spouse from the pool of believers, that they'd only marry a believer. These texts are consistent with the notion. They may even suggest the notion, but they do not prove the notion. Well, in the third place, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And I've heard some pastors say, in reply to this passage, There it is in black and white. You can't marry a non-Christian. If they're right... This would make dating a non-Christian indefensible, not a right or a freedom the church should be asked to accept. But they're wrong. In the context of Paul's letters to the Corinthians church, it is extremely clear what Paul is talking about here. He is saying to them, you are not free as Christians to enter pagan temples and take part with them in the worship of idols. That's what he's saying. Why would Christians even want to do that? What's their thinking? Well, they would like to do that, actually, because temple worship in the Greco-Roman world was the hub around which a lot of socialization uh, occurred. Pretty much all meat came out of the sacrifices that were offered in such temples. The temple was the butcher shop, And the barbecue, the butcher shop and flip side combined. If you wanted to eat meat, 
You often had little choice except to eat meat that had been offered by way of sacrifice to idols. Also, there was a lot of prostitution and sex associated with certain temple practices, especially in Corinth. But actually, all of that is of little consequence to the spiritual danger of being there. For the worship of idols is the worship of demons. And, and we are the temple of the living God. His spirit is with us. We have no business in the temples of demons who are opposed to God and godliness. However, for the newly converted Christians in Corinth who were used to what a Saturday night at the temple of Apollo or Octavian might have looked like, understanding that they were not free to continue to go may have been a hard message to swallow. So then, without question... Paul is not talking about marriage in this text. And it is difficult to even apply this text to marriage without making Paul contradict himself. You see, we, we know from Paul's letters to Corinth that he, he assumes that Christians will socialize with non-Christians. He assumes that we'll have normal business dealings with non-Christians. He assumes that Christians will invite non-Christians into their worship services. He, he, he actively discourages Christians who are married to non-Christians from separating from them. In the one place where Paul could establish marriage between a believer and an unbeliever to be spiritually illegitimate, he does the opposite. He establishes it as spiritually legitimate. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, To the rest I say this, or I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So then, if the words do not be yoked together with unbelievers can be applied to marriage, then they must be grounds for divorce. If they aren't grounds for divorce, then they can't be applied to marriage. They have to do with temples. We're left in an awkward place. We have to concede that while the New Testament might assume that, that Christians will marry Christians exclusively, there's no clear ban on marrying a non-Christian. There is no clear teaching in the New Testament that unequivocally makes dating or marrying a non-Christian a sin. What are we going to do? Well, let's take a step back and look into the Old Testament in order to see what assumptions the apostles themselves may have had with respect to this area of ethics. And what do we find in the Old Testament? Well, indeed, a major theme in the Old Testament is the long-standing theme of separation from the other nations for the Jews. The Jews were to be in stark isolation from their neighbors. But not a geological separation, not a social isolation. There could be friendship, trade, cultural exchange. 
there was the expectation that they would welcome in refugees. They were commanded to. But there was to be one stark isolation, and that is that the Jews were not to worship what their neighbors worshipped, nor were they to worship how their neighbors worshipped. It is this theme of spiritual separation that Paul is alluding to in the Second Corinthian passage. Come out from them and be separate, not physically, spiritually. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. With respect to the Old Testament, there was no blanket ban on marrying non-Jews or non-Israelites. Now, actually, Deuteronomy does totally ban intermarriage with the nations that had occupied the land of Canaan before the Joshua-led conquest. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses writes, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Gerashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jezubites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their sons for your daughters, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Well, uh, that text makes plain the danger, and it's a spiritual danger. Under the Mosaic Covenant, husbands and wives who do not know the Lord will ultimately be successful in undermining the faith of their believing spouses. The text doesn't say that there's a possibility or a chance of that happening. The text says it will happen. They will be successful in turning God's people from following the Lord. Curiously, though, curiously, this ban does not apply to neighboring nations. For later in the same book, chapter 21 of Deuteronomy, Moses writes, When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. But you must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. Well, therefore, as far as the law of Moses stands... Israelites were free to marry from any of the nations except seven, those who had previously inhabited the land of Canaan. That freedom, however, is nuanced. It's not entirely black and white. It's shades of grey. Canaanite women from the banned nations were married and indeed incorporated into the family tree of Jesus as long as they were believers, namely Tamar and Rahab. Yet, on the other hand, even spouses from non-banned nations were to be despised if they led led faithful people into sin. 
if they came from countries not banned. So then in 1 Kings 11, Solomon's huge number of foreign wives was explicitly his downfall. Some were from banned ethnic groups like the Hittites, others were not. Nevertheless, they led him into idolatry, spiritual compromise, a failure to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. His reign ends in disgrace. What else do we find? Well, the book of Esther Esther is interesting. In the book of Esther, the whole plot revolves around a marriage between a believing Jewish woman and a non-believing Persian man. There isn't the slightest hint that Esther should be censored for not having resisted this union. Indeed, it is very clear that she had no choice in the matter. And in fact, the interpretation of the story depends upon us seeing that God had indeed called believing Esther to be married to unbelieving King Xerxes. It was the will of God, therefore, for Esther to marry an unbeliever. Later in history, in the time of the post-exilic community in the 4th century BC and later, intermarriage with neighboring nations was seen as a severe threat to the national, cultural, and spiritual identity of God's people. Um, We see this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Culturally, one problem was that the children of such marriages didn't even speak Hebrew. Spiritually, the problem was that the Jews were taking on for themselves the detestable practices of those other nations. Explicit mention is made of the fact that, that they were failing to keep the Sabbath. It's implied, however, that the Jews would also have been quick to fall into the sexual immorality that was common and child sacrifice and the worship of idols that that constituted the worship of of their neighbors. So does this Old Testament background shed light for us as New Testament Christians? Well, yes, I think it is safe, we are safe in assuming that the apostles saw a real spiritual danger in Christians marrying non-Christians. And I think that we can indeed say that the apostles assumed that Christians, where they were able to choose, would choose a Christian spouse. I think we can interpret their words, therefore, in the New Testament in that light. And... This is my pastoral experience, and it's the experience of many pastors. When when an on-fire Christian becomes romantically involved with a non-Christian, one of three things can happen. The non-Christian might come to faith in Christ too. To be sure, that's wonderful, and to be sure, it happens. Alternatively, the non-Christian might not convert. And yet the Christian continues to be on fire for the Lord. That happens too, undoubtedly, although such Christians usually report that being married to a non-Christian is incredibly difficult and usually the one thing in their lives they wish was different. The third thing that can happen is that the on-fire Christian, having become involved with a non-Christian, just happens to completely come off the boil, so to speak, about Jesus. Their church attendance moves from regular to occasional, And their zeal seems to get replaced with a quiet, privatized piety. At best, they are lukewarm about the Lord. Of the three things that can happen, it is the experience of most pastors, I believe, that the third is the most common. It is not unreasonable, therefore, to affirm that getting romantically involved with a non-Christian is spiritually dangerous. 
Well, why is it dangerous? Well, let's think about what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who is following Jesus. That doesn't mean doing our best to apply the principles that Jesus promotes as best we can with Jesus as some kind of religious guru, as though he was the instigator of some new philosophical movement. No. No, it means actually knowing Jesus personally as God with us, having met him in the power of the Holy Spirit, having been born again. You can't follow someone you haven't met. Following Jesus does indeed mean living according to his teaching, to be sure, with the Spirit as our strength and help. But it also means knowing his will and his way and walking in it with respect to all kinds of personal and individual decisions that are between him and us. Following Jesus means knowing Jesus and putting him first in every decision and in every area of our lives, keeping everything surrendered to him. That's hard work. And temptations to do otherwise come thick and fast. And if the person we're married to does not have that same love for Christ and is not motivated by that same desire for the kingdom, then living for the kingdom just gets more and more difficult. Certainly not impossible, but incredibly hard. If Jesus is your first love, why would you choose to marry someone who doesn't know him, who doesn't love him, who doesn't respect him? However, if marrying a non-Christian, according to such thought, is such a bonkers thing to do, then why aren't Christians explicitly commanded to marry only Christians? Or to put that another way, why aren't Christians forbidden to marry non-Christians? Why is it not clearly labeled sin, as so many other things clearly are in the New Testament, things like adultery, theft, slander, and murder? Well, I think there might be several possible reasons. Firstly, it's actually difficult to judge, really, and we're not called to judge beyond a certain way. If somebody says, I'm a Christian, then we can certainly take that on face value. We must take it on face value. Beyond that, we're not to judge. The sad fact of life is that indeed many do fall away. The parable of the sower assumes this to be so and teaches it to be so. Just because you married a Christian on the day of your wedding does not guarantee that 10 years later, for example, that person will still confess Christ. Therefore, we might do our best to make sure we're marrying a like-minded, spirit-filled Christian, but people change. A second point is that vast numbers of people have experienced little or no freedom in the area of choosing a spouse. Lots of people don't get to decide for themselves who they'll marry. Arranged marriages have been the norm across most of the world until the 17th to 20th centuries. It is probably a safe assumption to believe that arranged marriages were the norm in New Testament times. Therefore, the command, thou shalt not marry a non-Christian, would have been beyond the scope of compliance for many young people, especially young girls, slave or free, living under the roof of a patriarch. Well, where does this leave us? Let's return to our starting question. Is it acceptable for a Christian to date and or marry a non-Christian? I hope that you can see that it's actually not a question we can answer. We cannot say, you are free to marry whomever you wish. Nor can we say, to marry a non-Christian is sin. Both statements are false insofar as both statements are inadequate. 
It does remain possible that, like Esther, our Lord Jesus Christ may occasionally call one of his followers to marry someone who doesn't know him. I believe that that is possible. It is also possible for a church-going Christian to marry another church-going Christian and for this to be gross sin because actually one or both of them is ignoring the Lord who is saying to them, actually this person isn't right for you. Not only is that possible, but it happens perhaps a lot more frequently than we might think. So then, on the one hand, when push comes to shove, we cannot judge each other on this issue, nor can we impose discipline on those who aren't conforming to our wishes, desires, or expectations. And yet, on the other hand, it would be grossly negligent of us as a community to fail to warn young people of the potential spiritual danger of getting romantically involved with someone who doesn't know the Lord. So is there an answer? Yes, there is definitely an answer. Keep everything surrendered to Jesus. Anything else is idolatry. Here are two suggested practical outworkings of that answer. First, to take up a point that I made last week, it is imp- it's really important that we don't fall in love with falling in love. Romantic, erotic love is one of the major idols of contemporary Western culture. If that's a new thought to you, I'm sorry, I don't have time to expound or explain that idea today. But we really, really need to make sure our young people understand that romantic love and marriage are good things, but they are not God things. They cannot save, they cannot make you happy. Only Jesus can do that. And if following Jesus for you means letting go of marriage, then for the love of God, let go. Secondly, and again taking up a point that I made last week, if we as a community seek to live out the love of Christ in the way that we do courtship, we will act as a buffer, holding our young people upright and in safety while they take their first steps into the grown-up world of finding a spouse. Consider, for example, one of our young people starts dating a non-Christian. When, when the, when the non-church, unchurched um, person in question discovers that going out with one of our young people is not about sex, for that is unquestionably out of bounds, when they discover it's not about sex but rather about getting to know their new friend in the context of their family, their friends and their church, and being accountable to all of them, then that will probably sort the wheat from the chaff out pretty quickly. And that really might be quite a powerful witness to the young person in question that firstly, we really love and care for our young people and want the best for them. And that secondly, we really love and care for them too. That they are invited to know us and to be known by us. As a package deal, they may not necessarily have been expecting, but that might actually turn out to be rather better, of greater value than the thing that they were searching for, if indeed the thing that they were searching for was simply the satisfaction of their own needs and desires. Could be a powerful witness. A powerful witness to what? To Jesus, who is Lord. That we put him first. In everything. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.